All right. Thank you for tuning into the fourth episode of It Was Either This or. Yeah, our uh, podcast. Yeah, this is a um, atypical introduction. You'll get a normal introduction in a second here. Mm-hmm. Taylor and I are revisiting the beginning of this podcast to say a few things. Uh, the first is, um, as you have garnered from the title, um, this is a discussion about abortion. Yeah. And um, we name why we thought it worthwhile to have this discussion in the podcast but um because we don't know everybody that listens um we just wanted to say a few things up front yeah so we wanted to acknowledge that this is obviously a pretty heavy topic for everyone to listen to we wanted to give a bit of a trigger warning if you are a person who has had an abortion or has close proximity to someone who has an abortion um We tried to be as careful as we possibly could with our language and our discussion, but we understand that um, it might be hard for you to listen to uh, people have a discussion about abortion, so we wanted to give you a heads up that that's what our topic is for today. And then we also wanted to name sort of our context and our limitations so that you could be aware of, you know, sort of more about who we are and where we are as we um, discuss this topic that is really sensitive and... um, that people take really seriously. So, um, uh, again, I'm Taylor. I'm 33 years old. I am a woman in my 30s, and I'm unmarried, and I have no children. I don't exactly know what my future looks like with children um, or with marriage, and so that's a little bit of what I am bringing into this conversation um, as a conversation partner with Josh. Yes, and I am Josh. I am 39. Um, and I have no idea what it's like to be a woman. I've never been pregnant. Um, I am married. We have four children and we were, I think I can say this, we were pregnant with a fifth and had a miscarriage. Um, and so, you know, that shred of experience is part of my story. Um, but yeah, I, of course, especially so it's, it seems important to acknowledge, um, my proximity and my non-existent past with having experienced rampant sexism and other things that um, certainly have shaped my perspective and um, yeah so I just felt like we need to say that so yeah so um, as always we tried to engage each other meaningfully but thoughtfully and kindly about this topic and we hope um, that you will also find that meaningful this is the one I was trying to do the other week. We're in October. I don't think I know this song. It's the on the Witch Mountain or whatever. Yeah, that part. It's um, it's in the the I told you the soundtrack that um, oh yeah, the social media. What's that show? Uh, the social network. Yeah, yeah. Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross did a cover. Of, I think it Witch on Bald Mountain maybe. It was so good, but we're in October, which means Woo-hoo, October. We're like twenty seven days, twenty eight days, six days from Halloween. But what will we do on Halloween this year? Do you think? Well, nothing. <laughs> Presumably, but I will tell you this. I mean, a great question. Like, cold cord? cold cord will have thousands, literally thousands of people together huddled. Well, they'll have masks on. That's true. <laughs> they probably they won't be masks, CDC huh? approved masks, but they'll have masks on. Yeah. Yeah. Guess what I can't wait for? So it's it's October and I did this. Right. When we get to the December episodes, uh-huh. Christmas Carol every week. <laughs> I'm so excited. I, maybe, love, I love Christmas Carol. Maybe a little early even. Okay. Maybe like late November. I'm That's gonna start with the Christmas Carol. Okay. As long as it's after Thanksgiving, it can't be uh, Thanksgiving. <laughs> if we record that Monday of Thanksgiving week, I might cheat. Oh, okay. I might cheat. Do a little early. Yeah. That'll be okay. We'll make it through. Oh my gosh, Taylor! What Woo-hoo. a week. We made it. All right. I have two things I want to talk about. Okay. Great. Let's talk about the them. one is a documentary you haven't seen. Have not. Seen it's them. it's sweeping the nation. It is. I mean, that's true. It's called, speaking of the social network, what's it called? It's on Netflix. The Social Dilemma? The Social Dilemma. Okay. Yeah. Now, here's my opinion, which has led to bigger thoughts I've had this weekend. Okay. For those of you who have seen it, it's like, oh, this is what the social networks are doing with you. They're following your life. They're manipulating your behaviors. You are the product. They sell your data to companies. And to all of that, I'm like, yep. Yeah. I think that's why I haven't watched it. That's what I understood it to be, and I feel like I know all you knew those that. things already. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, they do this very cleverly, like, okay, 
so-and-so is here because they can trace where you are if you let them. Oh, this person's nearby. They both have a affinity for this. Yeah. Let's send advert. It's crazy. Now that that, but I I thought all all that's true. I knew yeah. that. No, that happened like uh, last winter. I bought a sweater with the from White Christmas, the sister sisters. Oh yeah, I love that sweater. Singer. I love that song. It's a great sweater. We get, that's gonna be one of our carols. Okay. Okay. Perfect. And um, I was talking to Brie about it, and I was like, "Oh, I bought it on Instagram." And then she opened her Instagram app, and there was an ad. Okay, now that is a little more freaky. This is why. Because this has happened to me on occasion, too. I'm fine with the what I search on the internet so you can follow me. I do not like the, I was speaking about this, and now it's in my... That was scary, because, yeah, nobody searched anything. I just told Brie about this. Yeah, that's some Big Brother 1984 stuff right there. Yeah, it was frightening. Honestly, I try not to think about it. So now here's the other thing though there and, and this is dovetailed with what I was listening to this morning on up first on NPRs. Okay. Um, but you know there's a lot of concern with the election oh. of there being bad information put out there in these social media networks and whether or not right. they'll be able to curtail that information responsibly. Right. So um, I was thinking in this because this is a nonpartisan church effort right. that you could apply this both ways. Sure. But here's what's just ridiculous to me about all this stuff. Okay. And I'm going to make the same argument for the, the Amazon empire, too. Okay. The, you probably get on to me a little bit for this. Like, the, okay, the thing's power. Uh-huh. And the best way to control power in this country is money. That's right. a very um, sad reality, but that's how, that's how it works. In this country, sure, yeah. So um, the moral arc of the universe bends towards money. Jamie McGregor said that very cynically. <gasps> so... If everybody wanted, like, if everybody's so angry about how the media networks are using the thing, mm-hmm. then these 15, 50 million people voting blocks, uh-huh. the most effective thing they should do is all get off the, like, all deactivate their accounts. Okay. Because that would slam the advertising dollars. And it would force the hand of these media networks to put proper um, filters that they want. Uh-huh. Why don't we do that? It's the same with Amazon. When people get mad at Amazon, yeah. the most effective thing you could do... If you really hate the way Amazon treats employees, is stop shopping. Yeah. We as a country, sorry, I'm getting on my soapbox. soapbox. I love it. If we could like an elect a person as civilians uh-huh. to be like the mind and the mouthpiece of like Citizens United, where like this person's like, okay, it looks like Apple is sending viruses in their phones to get them to crash out after two years, so they buy one. Mm-hmm. Like if they could be like, all right, everybody in America, nobody's buying Apple products for three days. Mm-hmm. And like we have the negotiating power, we could solve so many problems. You think three days would be helpful? Well, whatever. whatever. I'm just saying the threat of the the consumerist threat is what would change things. Mm-hmm. So if we wanted yeah. to regulate um, the way that media networks use political ads, everybody should get off. Yeah. And say we're not getting back on until you meet these demands. That makes sense. We could do it. We could do it. It's just so hard to get anybody to do anything. I know. Well, I you, I masks. You know what I was right. <laughs> I was thinking about yesterday. How does Netflix make money? Subscriptions. Yeah, but it's like everyone in the United States shares like three Netflix subscri- subscriptions. Well, I think that's built into their product model. They or their know that business model. Yeah. But how do they do so many things? Like, um, it feels like they have. They are a very rich company. Well, they're very large. Yeah, but you know, they... a lot of those companies just run off debt forever, though, and they they want it that way for their taxes. Oh, okay. So everybody draws a salary, but what really what they're selling is the notoriety and the opportunity. Okay. I don't know. I, that's a good question. You're right because the volume they put out, yeah. some of it's got to be economies of scale. Like you have the studios, you have the connections, you have the, right. and and a lot of it is like I don't want to say B grade, but it's just not as quality. Right. Some of it is really good. Some but a of it's lot of really it is, good. They are turning out a lot of stuff. It's like no. interesting since we're doing this. I listened to um, Sofia Coppola on Armchair Expert this week. Oh yeah. And Dax asked about like you know the theaters have been taken over by Avengers and these high budget films and how it's kind of really ruined the indie industry. Yeah. But she said it's been Netflix and Apple who have kind of revived it. Uh huh. Because they're paying for this stuff. So you're, if that's your thing, you're actually getting high quality indie films now produced and run on Netflix. Yeah. Well, Last Dance. That was the Netflix effort. No, that was the ESPN effort. Yeah, yeah. But there you have a non-major network right. producing a high-quality... Documentary. Oh, Taylor, speaking of which. Yeah. If people want to get saved... Yeah. Watch Ted Lasso. Okay. I need to watch it, I guess. I did. I feel like just this past week, everyone was like, 
jumped on the train and I felt behind. But. I, it was interesting because um, I've been thinking how widely I could recommend the show in terms, because everybody talks about how it's just like wholesome. It's the show you needed during pandemic. Uh-huh. I realize I've been a little desensitized to the Holy Spirit because I really paid attention. There's a few F-bombs. Okay. But I mean, just in terms of making you feel good about a, a human being and the kind of human being that could exist in the world, Ted Lasso's your show. Okay. It's on Apple, everybody. It's on Apple? Yeah. I don't officially recommend these things, but I'm recommending this. Okay. I loved it. I don't think we have Apple, so maybe I'll... I have, I, I feel like I bear the brunt of the subscription paying. Like you pay for it In my all? family. I pay for multiple, yeah. Well, come on. Tell, I know. Tell Marty to get Marty, get yeah. an Apple account if you're listening. Yeah, Marty, get an Apple account. God bless Marty. She's the best. She's the best. Um, what a lady. All right. The other thing I want to talk about is in my effort to continue my education. Right, yes. A few weeks ago, I had seen uh, somebody write in the social media spheres uh, the phrase, folks. F-O-L-X. Yeah? Which I've seen more and more frequently. People uh-huh. will substitute a vowel or a consonant, or is it always vowels? Well, if that's not a vowel, folks. Oh, yeah. It would be C-K-S, right? Just K-S, yeah. L-K-S, yeah. Oh, yeah, sorry. F-O-L-X. No, no, you're right. I'm dyslexic. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that's true. So, um, yeah. So, And I just thought, well, that's like a, a cute way to, you know, like be cool. Yeah. But that's not what that is. So I asked you guys about it. Yeah. I mean, you, Jamie, and Toph were kind of my cultural educators. <laughs> and what would your answer be for, for why people use X? Uh, to make things gender neutral for the most part. Okay, so it's not race per se. It's gender neutral. Yes. Okay, so here's what I was thinking though. So you sent me that Latin X thing because I asked specifically about that this week. Yes. I, this, and this is maybe a discussion for a linguist. Yeah. But, like, in this instance, it's Latino or Latina. Right. So it's Latinx. Yeah. Right? Gender neutral. Yeah. That, to me, makes a little more sense because words are feminine and masculine in those languages in a way that it's not in ours. Yeah. So, like, folks is presumably gender neutral to start with. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, men and women, right? right. That's that's different. Yeah. But, um, so I just thought, well, does that really mean the same thing linguistically? Or can it mean the same thing? Um, you know, I think um, I am. We should be honest here. I'm not a linguist, uh, and neither do I claim to be some sort of expert about language. I think folks is more of like um, with an X. Folks with an X is and more. X. You know, it's like um, a lot of people will try to. I know a lot of people who are saying like we should all put our pronouns in our like Twitter bio or Instagram bio or something like that. Yeah. So that we normalize people having using pronouns or telling people their pronouns so that it's not like a only thing that only okay. a thing that trans people have to do. I gotcha. And I think folks is similar in that it's sort of a, a symbol of like this is a particular community that I'm addressing or like I, like even if I'm just using a neutral word, it is like I want you really to know that it's neutral. Like I'm not using the word folks because I'm used to using the word folks. I'm using it with an X because I want I want it to be clear that I'm addressing a gender neutral community. So is it fair to say maybe it's a way to codify sensitivity in the written form? Yeah, I think maybe. Again, I'm not an expert, so I don't know, but um, but I think yeah, I think that. Is I true. think I just got too hung up in the list linguistic differences between English and Spanish. Okay. Because like you know, I took German. You right. have der, die, das, mm-hmm. and these um, often indicate what what the um, the you know I don't want to say gender that would be misapplying, but like the whether or not a word is feminine or masculine. Uh-huh. Like computer in German has a bent, whereas in America it's computer everything's it. In English, right? Yeah. But a lot of languages have. I mean, Spanish also has feminine and masculine words. That's what, yeah, that's what I'm saying. So right, German yeah. would be an analog to Spanish. Whereas we don't have this hurdle, I think, if I'm understanding language correctly, in English. No, right. Computer is a gentle neutral thing. Okay. I think I was just making the point that the X seemed to function more vividly in Spanish to me than yeah. it does in English. I think that's probably true, and it, I mean, it's. I find it really interesting to think about like uh, pronouns in other languages that are more gendered than ours is. Um, I saw someone post on Twitter recently that they are in a German class in college, and they are non-binary, 
So they're using they, them pronouns in English, but that their professor reached out and said, I noticed you're using non-binary pronouns. It, German is hard to find non-binary pronouns. Let's work together to find the best pronoun for you. And I thought that was really sweet and really kind. And also, yeah, just an interesting thing to think about that like in other languages, pronouns might be more complicated or less complicated than they mm. are in English. You know what I like about this discussion? What? Is um, like language is probably the most immediate way we can honor one another yeah. and how we use it. Mm-hmm. And um, I like that because I, I believe so thoroughly in John 1 and the selection of Logos as the metaphor for right. Jesus. Yeah, right. And yeah. Um, I just think, you know, they say the pen is mightier than the sword. I really believe that about language. The older I get, the more powerful words seem to me. Yes. Yeah, I agree. Language and how we address each other and speak to each other, I think is really important and it is also like um a thing that's so easy to get lost as you get older and become more entrenched in your own worldview like learning to speak about other people and see other people who are different from you um is such an important thing to do well and to do kindly and our language around that is important too i think yeah okay well we now move to yeah the most titan of topics. Yeah. And we're really jumping into it this Well, week. we are this may be a short-lived effort. <laughs> so, let me say a few things to get going. Um, of the feedback we've gotten from people has been I think a, well, a uniform note would be it, it feels refreshing to have people who disagree with each other in a space yeah. continue to speak respectfully for each other. And we feel that like it's so easy for us to talk about these things and not be threatened and to love each other when we're done. Yeah. So that's one reason we want to do it. Yeah. I will say in preparing for this week, I spent a lot of time trying to think about and feel the feelings, which is darn near impossible, of a woman who has had an abortion Mm -hmm. or um, somebody who just vehemently will disagree with our positions. Mm -hmm. And so... um, I know that you've thought about that too. Right. The people you love and pastor that are going to disagree with your position. Right, yeah. And so I think I just want to say, um, you know, I think most of the time the response to that is, well, let's not do it then. Right. But hopefully us being in this space and modeling this and hopefully our love for each other comes through. Yeah. That that gives people a sense that even though they might disagree with us, we're still safe. And let me say this. Yeah. I know what your position is. Yeah. And there is absolutely no one that I wouldn't trust you to totally minister to in a pastoral moment in love, yeah. regardless of their position. Same. Yeah, same to so, you. So I don't know if that'll land. I don't know if that'll be enough for people, but yeah. I thought like we should start there. Yeah. Okay. Do you want to start this or do you want me to start it? I think I would like you to start it. Oh, good okay. Lord. <laughs> okay. I do have some data that okay. I just, we're going to talk about abortion. And one of the things I wanted to do was like get to like what what actually happens because we all talk a lot about ideas. So I used extensively the Gottmacher website. Gutmacher. It sounds Nailed it. German. Nailed it. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to start with some data. So 24 percent quarter of women will have an abortion by 45, and I assume 45 because that's your menopausal area. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, now this one's key for me. Okay. 49 percent of those are from folk people who are below the poverty line right um this one also struck me and there is a ton of this data if you ever just want to 59 percent of abortions are had by mothers and the reason i noted yeah. that one is because I, the reality isn't that these are people who don't love children right or who don't want children at right all. right yeah that one was really striking for me 18 of all percent of pregnancies end in abortion and in 2014, so this is a little bit data, mm-hmm. 13% of abortions were had by those who self-identified as evangelical, oh. and 24 identified as those who were Catholic. 24%? Yeah, so 37% oh, wow. of those were from either evangelicals or Catholics. Okay. Um, one thing I did want to observe, and we're going to differentiate in this conversation about the difference between our civic positions yeah. and our religious positions, yeah. um, is that... You know, one of the the um, things that's often cited is about the cases of rape and incest, uh-huh. which are very important. Yeah. Um, I was staggered to find out that 1% of abortions are from cases of rape. Yeah. And a half percent of them are from incest. Yeah. 
Because that feels low to you. Well, yeah, and and the reason I mentioned that is I feel like they're given that that's the data. Uh-huh. There's a disproportionate amount of time spent on. But Probably. what about these? Because sure. like, let's say Congress or the president or whoever just passed a uniform law. Mm-hmm. Forever protecting abortions in the case of rape and incest, mm-hmm. you still have 98.5% of, of abortion cases to think about. Right. I don't know. It seems significant to me. Uh-huh. Um, and of course, um, but also saying that that 1.5% needs the utmost care and right. thoughtfulness. Of and, okay. Uh, another thing that I wanted to just to get out there before we really start unpacking this, because I've seen this floating around recently, and that is abortion rates have fallen under all presidents, but most sharply under Democratic presidents. Uh-huh. So I found this claim, because that, that one more recently has been floating around on memes on the internet. Right. According to PolitiFact, um, it's half true. Got a half true rating. Um, and the reason is, is because that states don't have to, aren't mandated to report abortion data. Right. They do it voluntarily. And states that have not been reporting are... California, D.C., Maryland, New Hampshire, which is 14% of the population. And God knows those are liberal hotbeds messes, especially California. Right, yeah. So, no, I I say that pejoratively, not necessarily the case. But that is that does skew the data when you have 14% of the country not Not reporting. Um, But I think this is also encouraging. Abortion spiked after Roe v. Wade, but has been on a steady decline since the 1980s. It staggered in 06 to 08, but really. So... All that to say, um, you have a lot of variety and when and why and where and how abortions are happening. Yes. Okay. Uh, I want to start here. Okay. You, for the record, are? Pro-choice. And I am, for the record, pro-life. Yeah. But I think what we've discovered as we nuance and talk, we end up with positions, at least, um, I think, religiously, that don't look wildly different. Yeah. So I think... I think um, a lot of what we would describe as what we think is correct, both politically and personally, religiously and spiritually, is very, very similar. That the, I mean, that the outcome of, even though we would say we hold different positions, that the outcome of those positions is like, has a lot of overlap. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, um, why don't you, can you start just talking about how you arrived where you have? Yeah. Because I think as a confessional Christian, Maybe it's the wilder norm to be pro-choice. Maybe not. Well, I don't know. Yeah, I do think uh, I, you know, I must say that I told Josh this before we got started. But so, and I've mentioned this multiple times. But my parents are progressive, so I grew up in a household that was pro-choice. Um, and so, but I also grew up going to a Baptist church, so I spent a lot of my life. Um, like actively not saying the things out loud in front of church people that I am about to say on this podcast. Um, And so that, you know, that has caused me to be, to just know that um, growing up in Texas, attending a Baptist church um, in a pro, like a home that was teaching me that to be pro-choice was the kind and moral thing to do is, um, it was quite an experience, and so I ended up thinking a lot about where and why, um, especially in this topic, I like adopted the beliefs that I have. And um, so, uh, I I think I've mostly been pro-choice my whole life, um, and I think that a lot of the reasons why I came to that belief have to do with as any good Baptist, um, like personal autonomy. Uh, and the idea that if I believe that um, men and women and all humans carry their um, the image of God into the world, then I also believe that they have the right to make decisions about their bodies um, and that they will... At some point, I have to trust people to make decisions that are best for, to make the best decision that they could possibly make in a given situation. And, you know, I know not everybody always makes the best decision they can make, but to me, it has a lot to do with um, individual autonomy granted by God as I see it, 
um, because people carry the image of God into the world and trusting that they can bear that well. And, um, yeah, I think, I mean, so I think that's like really the basis of how I got to where I am is it has to do with like believing that people bear the Imago Dei and then trust, like, and then saying like, and if that is true, then I have to trust them to make decisions about their own bodies and families, you know, because it's like, I don't know, it, it will be interesting to see some of those facts, but it's not obviously like a woman who is married or a woman who is carrying a baby with a man that she's in a relationship with. Like, obviously, I think that man has some level of say in what happens, but hopefully in a healthy partnership, that's like a healthy conversation and not um, something unhealthy. So, so all of that to say, I think there are multiple voices speaking into the moment. And I think that, that um, ultimately I feel like I have to trust people to make the best decision for their own bodies and their own families. Well, thank you, Taylor. <clears throat> um, I'll assume you asked the same question and I'll pipe in. Yeah. You know, I think, and I mentioned to you this in the email, having being forced to address this publicly or at least with the risk of that'll be heard publicly really forced me to think about how I'd articulate what I think and one of the discoveries I made in myself is in this position will probably ultimately kind of cast me as what is accused as a rhino Um, I don't vote Republican but in terms of this issue is I don't know that politically speaking I would say that I'm pro-life given my choice right like what that's supposed to mean right I think I'm pro-life. But right. I think the ultimate thing is I I do not think it would be wise at this point to overturn Roe v. Wade. Right. Because I don't think it will accomplish what people who want it overturned will accomplish. Well, and I think, um, yeah. Yeah, certainly. And I guess I should say, so that's sort of a little bit more of sort of a, the theological way of how I ended up where I am. But, like, politically, I certainly think it's so strange to me um, that uh, certain people are like very, very against big government and government overreach sure. and you know, the government being in your home or something like that. Um, but then oftentimes those are the same people who support overturning Roe v. Wade. Mm-hmm. And so that to me seems like a, it does seem confusing to me because it feels like you're saying I don't like big government except for in this one particular case and that doesn't really follow you know so i think politically to me it seems that there's even less of an argument for like overturning roe v wade or something like that and i can't i mean i can't make everyone believe the same things i believe yeah and i think for me and it's it's hard for me to untangle my religious belief with my political stance absolutely same so what i would say too is um, a commitment to being pro-life is pro-life all the way through. And sure. the, I feel like the country, and this has come from both parties, has really demonstrated that we don't want to be pro-life from start to finish. And right. so it then makes it really difficult for me right. to embody this part of the civic stance that we should overturn abortion laws when we're not going to provide any of the infrastructure or support to make that a viable choice for people right. outside of that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, all the way up to through the death penalty, you know, right. um, as a commitment to nonviolence. Yeah. I don't think that you can be, you know, for the death penalty and against. No, I want to make sure I get that right. It's the it's the contradiction that usually usually people are for the death penalty and against abortion. Yeah, and vice versa. Yeah. And to me, that's it doesn't make sense. Yeah. So, um, but even more than that, just you know, benefits for mothers, leave time, all this stuff. We, yeah. we don't really seem to want to spend our money in taxes on these things, right. and yet we very much want to. Well, wouldn't we say that it's pro-life to, like, make sure that um, families have health care, or families have child care options, and that children are being educated well in schools, and that it's possible to raise a child with dignity mm-hmm. um, in, a, in this particular system? Um, that also feels like a pro-life thing to me. Um, to be able to create and provide for human flourishing and not just like being um, concerned with life up till birth 
Yeah. Well, you know, this is it feels terrible to even cite this because of what it insinuates, but um, a salient way to really pose that question to people, and of course this can't be proven, but is the theory in Freakonomics um, by Stephen Dubner and I can't remember, Stephen Levitt maybe, mm-hmm. where they said that, you know, there's this drop in crime out east, um, and one way to reckon with that data is to say this came about 20 years after the Roe v. Wade mm-hmm. thing, mm-hmm. and it's like, um, you know, again, I can't or disprove but like right. um it's a i think a way to indict that yeah we don't want to uh invest in in helping people um be lift out of poverty that forced them into those kind of choices in the first place right and do we so do we really want that investment yeah uh, i'll tell you about a very formative moment for me in this discussion okay. so i took um what's the the baptist polity class at Truett called i don't remember Baptist identity identity and we had a lecture I took it in a week it was like that all day oh, whatever. Wow. Yeah. and um, this guy got up and he was doing something and his I think his first name is Bill something he, he was older and I don't mean to be ageist but like this seems significant mm-hmm. right I've got this old white guy right. Baptist through and through been in the BGCT system forever mm-hmm. and one of the things he did was he was in charge of like Baptist network of hospitals I don't know what that meant then I don't know what that means now so I don't know. I was kind of a hothead. I'm like, I'm going to go ahead and ask the hard question then. Sure. And um, I think I probably had detected some kindness in him and, and wanted to really fish this out because I was very much processing in the moment. But I asked him about abortion. And here this like 80-year-old Baptist white man yeah. uh, started crying. Oh, really? In the middle of a classroom. And I think what he was feeling was the cognitive dissonance between what he knew he was supposed to say in that moment, but what he was feeling. And he started talking about women who had come in uh, with like botched attempts Uh and how um, horrifying it was. Yeah. And I thought, well, my goodness, um, how beautiful is it that somebody with that kind of power is willing to be honest about that in that moment? Yeah. And so that very very much formed me uh, going forward. Yeah, I think... um... For me, some of the numbers that have always been... I mean, for me, I think this is a place where I feel um, maybe, you know, I track into some of my four space. But the idea that we need to be deeply, deeply honest about what will happen if abortion is overturned Mm -hmm. is so important to me. Like the idea that what will happen, that what happens everywhere in the world when abortion is illegal is women still have them. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the people in positions of power, um, their wives and their daughters still get abortions um, and they get them like in safe places, Mm -hmm. but that it is the poor and the disenfranchised that have to uh, go into back alleys, you know, essentially. is like, it is heartbreaking like I mean like I think that man probably saw the face of it you know as far Mm -hmm. as like I can't imagine putting someone in a position where they feel like their only option is to go somewhere shady and have that experience and like the trauma that that must cause and and so I think for me and I you know I think we've talked about this but Obviously, what I would like is for, um, you know, and this was sort of the, in the 90s, the Democratic take was um, uh, safe, legal, and rare. Yep. And to me, that is what makes the most sense. Like, I don't want, what I would like is for us to create a society in which nobody ever feels like they have to get an abortion. Do you know what I mean? Because they... They either know of places where kids are being taken care of well, you know, they know of good adoption agencies, or they trust that society has safety nets in place so that they will not be, um, you know, made homeless or unable to, like, sort of provide for a child. Um, But then also, like, that there are situations, and there are always going to be situations where it is uh, necessary, particularly in uh, dangerous pregnancies for women um, who will literally die and have literally died because they end up at hospitals that don't perform abortions. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think it's like, I I also would like for there to be zero abortions or zero like unnecessary abortions. But 
Um, yeah, and you know, it, I just want to pause there because it, the conversation is so heated. Mm-hmm. And yet I really do think that is the, the th- one railing point everybody p- could probably get around mm-hmm. is we can all agree that what would be best is if that is the last decision a woman had to make right. or, you know, had that choice to make. Right. Yeah, that that really probably is where we converge the most sharply is yeah. wishing for a society where that was like a choice among many and it, the other options were so much better that that right. was the least chosen. Right, yeah. Um, I do, because I think we both sound pro-choicey at this point. I do want to give each of us an opportunity to pose to the other that what I'm calling the hard question. Uh-huh. So do you want me to go first or do you want to go first? Um, as far as like posing the question yeah. or... Yeah. Um, well, I can pose the question, but at this point I've forgotten what the question is. Okay. Um, well, I don't know what your question for me is. I, gave, I think I gave you a heads up on mine. Yes, you did give me a heads up on yours. Um... Oh, wow. This is multiple questions. Okay. Well, I'll, no, I'll answer first then. Okay. So here's my, and it's the most salient question, uh-huh. is when do you believe that life begins? Yeah. And how do you, I guess, reckon with whenever you decide that is with your view? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I guess for me, I think, well, I won't go off on a tangent, but... Um, I am not a scientist by any stretch of the imagination. And so, um, I think that, but I mostly trust scientists and I feel like most of the science right now says, um, that, I mean, I guess what it boils down to for me is like, at what point can a, uh, can a baby like sustain life on its own outside of a, outside of a female body? Um, and I would often, I think I would even say like, so at this point it's mostly abortion until in the first trimester. Mm-hmm. And would you articulate that as your position? I'm pro choice to the first trimester. Yes, I think I would. Okay. Um, well, cause one thing I was going to push back on is, you know, but the answer to that view could be that, that changes as technology develops. Right. Right? Like, we can keep babies now after 23 weeks. Yeah. Um, but what we couldn't... Mostly 20 weeks, I think. Yeah. I mean, I mean, in, you know, sort of if everything's given the best circumstances or whatever. Um, and so, so, even that being said, I think 20 weeks, but I would still say, like, 12. Do you know what I mean? Okay. Um, just to give some space for... I mean, you know, sort of miracle things happen all of the time, but... Um, and so I don't mind drawing a limit. I don't think that like it should, I mean, obviously again, this is the thing that's frustrating. I don't think anybody is like, we should be like abortion should be able to be performed until like birth or something. And it's like, nobody thinks that. Right. Who thinks that, you know? Well, that was one, you know, I, we had suggested bringing somebody on. That was kind of the person I was most interested in talking to was just a, a scientist to help us talk about what these terms mean and what's happening in terms of the, the fetus at different stages. Right, yeah. But, yeah, because I'm going to say things I don't know because I don't know the science behind that. Right. So so I think for me right now, the policy that I guess I'm most comfortable with is abortion in the first semester. Trimester, sorry. Yeah, this is, um. I mean, this isn't to further complicate the point because you've had a clear answer, but... When I did, I did a podcast years ago on infertility, mm-hmm. and we had somebody on who they had lost a baby at like twenty plus weeks. Mm-hmm. And one of the really interesting things he talked about was that um, if you have, if you lose a baby at nineteen weeks, whatever days, mm-hmm. it's a miscarriage. You have a DNC, it's biological waste. Mm-hmm. The process is over. If you lose a baby at twenty weeks one day, mm-hmm. you have to fill out a death certificate. You have to dispose of it through a funeral home. Yeah. Um, and so there's like a very clinical definition. Yeah. Uh, that we use to define where life is. And I understand why that is. And I don't think that should factor into this debate. But it, it, it is interesting to me that in one realm, we very much do have an opinion about how life should be treated at yeah. different points in utero. Right. I don't know. Well, I do think it's also, I mean, I think this is another thing that I can get sort of worked up about politically speaking, which is to say that so in a lot of states, no matter what stage you get an abortion, um, they make you have a funeral for the baby. And um, 
I think in a lot of those situations, women are making hard, hard, hard choices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so then for the state to double down and force them to expend more monetarily, but also more emotionally, yeah. uh, just it seems like cruelty. Yeah, that doesn't seem like it has the care of the person in mind at all. Right, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, you get to pose now for me. What's that? Okay. Oh, can I tell you one other thing that's fascinating? Yeah. Because uh, this is just for fun. Um, but I always play with, like, how do you think about these things theologically? Uh-huh. And, um, of course, I have several options. One is to say at inception. Sure. The other one is, like, uh, if I understand this correctly, it's not till the whatever it is. Uh, you call it zygote. Is that right? Mm-hmm. It's been a long time since I had sex ed. Plants mm-hmm. itself on the wall of the uterus. Uh-huh. That the thing fills with blood, uh-huh. and so I was just thinking about how instrumental blood is in the life of yeah. the the story of God. Yeah, that maybe that's a player. Yeah, um, and the only reason I think that's worth mentioning is because a lot of the preventative pills you can take, their job and even birth control is to keep that from implanting. Like that's the thing. So it's like you would keep it from that first moment of life. Right. The other really interesting one is that I mean is less compelling to me because of what we talked about in terms of science and the viability of 23 weeks. But like the first time a baby takes a breath mm-hmm. and the nephesh or the spirit, the ruha right. entering the lungs. Yeah. Um, that's, you know, just another fascinating theological to think about what is life and what does that happen? Yes. Uh, but this is going to tell you. So I was talking to, well, I'll keep them anonymous in case they don't want to be okay. <laughs> a professor who was taking an ethics class at Samford. Okay. Okay. So this is a probably step more conservative institution than Baylor. Yeah. And they had an ethics professor talking to them about this issue, and they said, you know, what we do now know from science, though, and this is from a friend from a friend, I haven't checked this out, is that you can take a embryo, uh-huh. that's right, that's when they're joined together, uh-huh. and you can divide it up to 16 times and have 16 lives, uh-huh. okay? You could then rejoin all 16 of those things back into the individual embryo, and that would also be viable. So uh, to get Platon platonic about the moment, uh-huh. like let's say we did this in a Petri dish uh-huh. and then we like had a lottery that was going to dictate to us what we did. Mm-hmm. Like are we going to have nine babies, eight, whatever. Yeah. Like is it 16 souls sitting there? Right. Is it one soul sitting there because God has foreknowledge about what's going to happen and these cells are going to be brought back together? Right. I don't know. Just interesting to complicate the discussion. Yeah. It, because so much of it is about inception. Uh-huh. I just wanted to add that bit. Yeah, well, I had a, you know, an interesting conversation with a friend this week also about, and this is, I'm not trying to be political, but about Amy Comey, Coney Barrett's uh-huh. um, stance on when life begins. And she believes that it begins at inception, which poses a lot of, like, question marks and concerns about... Um, in vitro fertilization because all of those eggs are yeah they're are they're already um they're fertilized fertilized yeah and so um yeah so just so that causes a lot of then concerns about well and that's just a place where and i, I don't want to exacerbate this because you know people deal with this all the time but right. a a place that i mean i don't think evangelicals are very consistent on Right. Is blessing the, um, you know, the people wanting to be pregnant. And so turning right. a blind eye to what happens in a vitro. Right. But then having a very firm stance on abortion. Right. And, you know, maybe they parse their own ethics up in a way where uh, embryos aren't lives. Yeah. And, maybe. you know, yeah. however many, you know, so I'll leave room there. But, yes, that is a another nuance within the discussion that's important to point out. Yeah. And I think what's hard for me is it, and obviously this is sort of my personal experience, but it does feel like there is one camp of people who is, or in my experience, I have experienced one camp of people who is acknowledging nuance, and then one camp of people who is not necessarily acknowledging nuance, and that is, that feels tricky. And there's more camps of people. There's lots of people thinking lots of things, but I do think that the hardest thing for me is when I encounter someone that doesn't use nuance in thinking about this topic because it feels very, very nuanced. Yeah. It was, well, it sets back to that we were talking about language is the first immediate act of care. Right. I mean, I, I, it doesn't make sense to me that our response to any very passion perspective on this is not one of compassion. Right. Yes, certainly. Exactly. Okay. 
You get to pose the question to me now. Okay. Um, so I think the question, I mean, ultimately the big question for me in this conversation is like, what, like, where do you think a woman right to make decisions about her body like where does it start and where does it end as far as this conversation goes yeah so i'm going to answer the question strictly civically okay. now and then um, by that i mean politically i guess and then when we get to the religious thing later i'll give the nuance for you um i think the answer for me is um she gets autonomy over her body mm-hmm. um i don't you know that's why i said i don't think there's wisdom in her overturning roe v wade mm-hmm. and i inescapably this is a theological statement I, but it's a human statement, and yeah. you can be an atheist in this, is true of you. I don't, like, this is a matter of the heart. Mm. And if um, I have a friend who's a woman who wants to have an abortion, it does me no good to preach my position to them. No, right. And the only way I can love them and be a friend is to come around them and give them understanding mm-hmm. and love them. So I, there's not really an expediency for me, especially as a male, right. to try and, you know, forecast my opinion to them. or Right. And there are cases where I think abortion can and should happen. And maybe they're one of those cases. Right. Well, I do think this is the other thing that is confusing to me is like, I mean, I I have lots of friends who had fertility issues and received, you know, got a DNC like multiple times. And they, some of them know people who would say that that is, I mean, that would condemn them. For that you know for that action and like um for taking care of their own bodies even though medically that is this is like a doctor recommendation do you know what i mean this is the, what the doctor is saying is like the best course of action to preserve the most life um mm. and i that is always that is always strange to me as well um so so yeah, I guess those are the big questions. Okay, do you you said questions? Do you have more, or is it just the one? No, but I thought you were gonna ask me like, should men get to even have an opinion on this or something? <laughs> uh, that doesn't feel like the biggest question to me, but I, that's interesting. Do you think men should have a say? Um, maybe not. I th- here's what I will say: if they created a subcommittee on abortion in the House or the Senate, uh-huh. and it was all women, I think that'd be fantastic. Yeah, I think so too. I think, I mean, it makes sense to me that. Yeah. I will also like, you know, and again, we'll get to my religious opinion. And I think it, I could just imagine how infuriating it is for women to have mostly men in political history really dominate this Making discussion. These choices. Yeah. Yeah. That just is, seems it, so wrong and unhelpful. Yeah. Okay. Let's turn now to the religious perspective. Okay. Um, so like I've negotiated a lot for my pro-life stance, um, and articulated some of what that is, is I think pro-life should be from, you know, cradle to grave. Right. Yeah. Um, so let me give the preconditions for what I think it's meaningful to have a pro-life stance with regards to abortion. Okay. First of all, I think that, um, this can only make sense in a community where there is the commitment to the kinds of means support to offer the kind of viable alternative to abortion that we've talked about. Kind of what you talked about in it, it would be great for the community to do this. Right. And the problem is even the very best church institutions I know are pretty far from this, right? Right. Like, um, you know, just a rhetorical question I could pose to any pro-lifer, myself included, is like, you believe this. But do you believe it so much that if a young mother comes knocking on your door, you're going to take a second mortgage on your house to help pay for her needs? Yeah. Like, do you believe it that deeply? Right. And the reason that that and so many other Christian ethics fail is because we were offered in a model where life was interlapped in a community or inter, interlaced in a community that is just not now. And we don't have the resources to take the ethical stands together like we could or should. Yeah. But let's say that exists. Let's say it's like Homestead Heritage. I wrote this in the email without the um, Margaret Atwood thing, right? Sure. And not that they are, but just like there's a kind of religious autonomy and whatnot, but there's a real commitment to an ethical system. One, I think you have to have everybody on board to that ethical commitment beforehand. Yeah. And then once that's there, a, a real commitment to grace when those boundaries are overturned. Right. So in our case, 
I'm a homestead heritage community on Lake Superior. Sure. And um, we're all these happy families. And one of these, uh, somebody's daughter gets pregnant. Yeah. Um, like, first of all, she's she had to consent to this like way of life. And if she hasn't, it's again, it's useless for us to try and prescribe to her ethic. But let's say she's there with us. Um, I think the theological argument for me, and you know, this is the, I asked the thing about life, but for me, it's less about when does life begin? Cause that is in some sense unknowable to me. Uh-huh. I think the better question for me is, um, what sort of, um, what kind of school of formation does this decision make in my life, make for in my life? Mm-hmm. And so, um, the thing I articulated to you in the email is, I think that Christianity does ask us to do hard things. Mm-hmm. And um, I realize that caring and bringing a baby to life is a, a challenge that men never have to face, and that sure. seems unfair. But then my other point is, like, I think that Jesus and the Christ hymn, Philippians, uh-huh. models for us the get-go, like the ultimate self-giving. God becoming human and then giving up that human life. Mm-hmm. And that we have a list of martyrs who have done that. And so the precedence of asking us to do the hard thing is not without, um, or we have precedence for that. So I would say, yeah, we can we can ask people to carry a baby, and that's a hard thing, but we can commit to helping them do that. And under those conditions, I yes, I'm pro-life. Right. I can see a lot of consternation on your face. <laughs> It feels a little bit to me like the um, like the conversation about um, oh I can't think of the word scripture and whether or not it's like hermeneutics no um, inspiration what are the fundamentalists believe oh inerrant inerrant right okay in the they're sort of like but the argument for inerrancy still is like in the original documents that nobody has. The Bible is I get you. So like the death of a thousand qualifications. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm like, okay, yeah, of course. I'll give it to you. In those documents that nobody has, maybe the scripture is completely in there. And that's so it's like in this Utopia. In this yeah, in this community that doesn't exist anywhere, would it maybe make sense to ask people to do that? Maybe. Um, I also think though at some point and I can't locate this, okay? I don't have a good argument for me uh, for this. But at some point, it always feels as if women are not being granted the fullness of humanity. Because they're not given the choice? Yeah. Hmm. Because it's on, because it's so on them, you know? And I do think that this is uh, this has systemic implications. Do you know what I mean? Like, would I feel that way in a different... And so this is a similar thought experiment. Would I feel that way in a completely different society where the patriarchy didn't exist? You know what I mean? And where this wasn't such a shameful thing. Um, so I think... Like, I think your argument hmm. makes sense. Um, well, two things. Can I jump in? Yeah. Number one, you know, I have this list here, of, and this is where I got the thing about rape and incest, and it's reasons that women articulated having abortions. Mm-hmm. And again, a lot of these can be solved with poverty. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. and I think the reason that I probably am pro-choice civically uh-huh. is because it's just we're never going to get to the utopian scenario I talked about where it's meaningful to have this conversation. Right. Um, and yet, I, I think ultimately I still confess this pro-life stance because for me, it's about having a vision of what could be and what should be. And even though that gets further and further from us in a world of what is filled with what I would use the term sin, right. um, it's like our, our eschatology should always inform our ethics, right? Like I think being nonviolent is completely unreasonable. Right. There's not a thing in my body that wants to do that. <laughs> and yet I have, the only way that can make sense to me is that the promise of what did happen and what will happen again is true. Yeah. I do think, right. Yeah. Even though no, I, I don't think there will ever be a time when there's stop being wars. I'm not going to overcome violence through nonviolence ever. Right. But I think it's the right thing to do. Uh-huh. I, I, I think my concern is so much rooted in um, 
women and for being for women, which is something that's an important value in my life, that I do just wonder, not even as much about like a pregnancy and carrying a baby and how that changes your body and your life or whatever, but it, I think it does always feel to me, like in all of these scenarios, always what happens is that the, um, expectation is then that you know a woman will will keep caring for this baby and this child for the rest of her life and that seems like that's <laughs> just like where are men like hmm. i don't understand why because where are men in advocacy or where are men in the role of support once the baby's there. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, both, <laughs> I think, of those things. Um, but also, like, so what if, you know, so a, a man in that situation might father a child, but then so much responsibility is put. And I think this is also part of it. Like, we live in a society where, especially in this pandemic, um, the reports, I mean, like, studies seem to be showing that men are doing less to help out around the house as, like, their wives are cleaning and taking care of children and also trying to have a career. Um, and so that is also a societal aspect that is distressing to me is that women just take on so much responsibility and what about, I mean, like, they are also created in the fullness of God and not just to bear and take care of children. And so, mm -hmm. like, what, you know, again, as we've talked about this, like, I don't, I'm not just like abortion should happen whenever, wherever, all the time. I hope that it is yeah. rare, but also, like, if a woman is making... A choice about her life. And this is a place where I have deep concern. Because I, I hear what you're saying about Philippians 2. And pouring out of our own selves. And doing hard things. But if a woman is making a choice about the rest of her life. And what she wants it to be like. Like how much say. I mean how much weight. Do we give that. Because she's mm. a full person. You know. Yeah. Um, and I don't know the answer. I think you know because. I because I hear what you're saying and also because I think as humans we should like be responsible for the choices that we make and the you know and then the sort of like what comes of those choices um, and also I guess I do just wish that it was like in a situation where a woman was like I had sex with someone I don't want any children but now I am pregnant obviously I would hope that they would find a safe place a safe family for um, that child to grow up but you know, we also know that those aren't perfect circumstances. Yeah. So. Well, let me say what I appreciate. I appreciate that, um, you know, you, you just sort of heard me take my best swing theologically mm -hmm. and um, then rearticulated that to me. And just because I trust you so much theologically and I'm, I'm trying to constantly be aware, not just of my subject position, mm -hmm. but the, the really the inability of men to ever be able to fully grasp um, what's felt right. that, um, you know, knowing you just heard what I said and then come back with that, that just one more moment where I'm deep in an appreciation for a perspective that's not my own and mm -hmm. I'm going to internalize that. So thank you for speaking to that so graciously. Well, thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Okay. Uh, you know what we forgot to do last week? Yeah. We forgot to talk about the NBA and we're in the finals. This feels like a very fast transition. So I hope you guys are ready. We are in the finals though. Okay. And... The Heat won last night. The Heat won last night. Can you believe it? I can't. You know, and I, I looked at the the Heat, the box score, and I didn't even realize because I haven't heard Kendrick Nunn's name that much. Mm -mm. He's not even starting anymore. Like really? Tyler Hero starting for him, and Nunn was first team all rookie. Um, but yeah, the Heat did it. Um, I, I made it happen. I, I think it's going to be four two. You know what? Good job. I will love that. Oh my gosh, what a great run so, for the Heat. The yeah. most interesting four seed. To get this far. Yeah. And who knows? Maybe they'll come back and win it. I mean, that would be so amazing. Did you see that um, 
interview with LeBron. I do feel like a broken record. I just talk about the Dallas Mavericks all the time. That's fine. But did you see that interview with LeBron where he was he talked about um, game two against the Mavs in 2011 and Dirk? I mean, he went on like a big run, like a 12-0 run, him versus like the Heat. And he said, LeBron kind of said, I could feel in that moment what was happening, like the energy that we were losing and that they were gaining because of the, these big moments Dirk was having. And he was he was like, I still think about it all the time. It's like burned in my brain, mm. that feeling of like feeling it all slip away in like game two, you know? Wow. And um, so... I thought that was fascinating and I do feel like that's probably a lesson that he has learned and is like I don't think he's gonna let them like come all the way back and win anything but um I just you know I didn't love him when he was super young he seemed yeah. very cocky uh, which is like of course he was like 18 and in the NBA so it's normal but he is so smart oh my I gosh think. and not just like basketball IQ but like you know, he seems to be really sort of working with management and doing all sorts of stuff. And then also, like, he's kind, like, the school he's opened and also, like, working with different NBA um, venues to do, like, polling or to do, like, voting sites. And he's just doing really great stuff. And then he's married to his, like, high school sweetheart, I think, and they've got a beautiful family. He's just really great. Well, this is similar in terms of um, noting things about him, how he's grown as a player and really is a great human being. But um, I have often thought one of the hardest lessons for really, really great people to learn is humility. Uh-huh. And, um, and you know, it to me, it's just always so dumb, too, because, like, you watch that Jordan documentary, and the guy was looking for reasons to hate you. Like, just say <laughs> the dumb thing. And so yeah. um, the the part of, like, the, the real sign of maturity for me this year in LeBron, and he's had a million of them, but was um, when he talked about playing the Nuggets. Uh-huh. Now I I was pretty confident that the Nuggets were spent at that point, right? And that they were going to get handled by the Lakers, right? But the smartest thing he did uh-huh. was talk about how great the Nuggets were yeah. and how he was, you know, not fearing but like offering respect to your opponent. Yeah. And um, I feel like he's learned that craft, and that's a critical uh-huh. part of being a good leader. Well, I think it's uh, being a good leader. It's also good like gamemanship. Oh whatever. yeah. Because then it's like. If you're talking crap about them, oh, yeah. you're like, oh, the Nuggets, we're going to blow through them. Then they get a chip on their shoulder. Well, that was my point with Jordan. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jordan would make those up if he didn't have them because <laughs> those were so powerful for him. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's just so, yeah. Yeah. Anyhow. Jordan. Uh, I got the Heat and si- or the Lakers in six. Okay. I've been proud of the Heat. You know, they beat the Bucks, and I don't hate them. That's something. That's, yeah, it will be interesting next year to see if the Heat are like a one or two seed. Like, is this a transformation or is this a streak? Right. And of course, it'll have what you know what happens with off season stuff too. But yeah, which what's that going to be? Are they going to start again in November? I don't know. I feel like no, right? Like people need more time off than that. Yeah. What is it? it's like the beginning of October right now? Yeah, and you usually have like you, your new off season would start soon. Well, and also I think, right, very soon. Like if not already. And I also think that, I don't know, when they had the lockout, um, they started it like on Christmas Day. Yeah. Maybe something like that. Yeah. But I could also see, I mean, it's also interesting to think about like, so the NFL and MLB are not playing in a bubble. Yeah. And so, but right now, everything they've done to finish this 2020 season has been in a bubble. So it's like, yeah. I don't think you can expect people to go back to a bubble for a for whole season. Of, yeah. Right? yeah. I mean, this is a long period of time, especially for these two teams, which have been there the whole time. I know. At least yeah. the, 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 you know, silver lining you get eliminated is you can leave. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Although, well, it is so funny. Did you see when they first got there and a bunch of them were like, this is bad. And then it was like really nice hotel rooms. Yeah. <laughs> And I was like, okay, so being rich is different. I forgot. Yeah. I forgot. <laughs> You'll be all right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's all I got on the NBA. You got anything else you want to talk about? Oh, did you see the the meme I posted this week in my lineup, though? I thought that was for you. <gasps> Tell me. That it was like Dirk's, about, Dirk's oh. one championship's worth more than yeah, Katie's, too. I did see oh, that. Oh, I did go back and look. Katie played for Golden State for four oh, years. Okay. He won two. Lost one, 
No, he wasn't there when LeBron beat him, though. So LeBron beat him, beat the Warriors. He came, they won two. Uh-huh. And then, maybe it was their three years, and then he got injured that last year and they lost. Okay. So he did win okay. two there. And I made two other observations. I'd forgotten Rick Carlisle was your coach when you guys won it. Yeah. And that, um, you know where he is now. Rick Carlisle? Yeah. Right now? Milwaukee. He's our coach. Is that true? Yeah. And then the other thing is, I've forgotten that um, the Mavericks and the Heat were in the finals when the Heat won before. In 2006. When it was Shaq and Wade, that that was the finals. You know, I find myself, the further we get away, it's like, I used to have hard feelings against LeBron, and the more we move away from it. Even though, like, I love Dwayne Wade and Gabrielle Union, like... I have hard feelings toward Dwayne Wade. Really? Yeah. I, see, he's one of the more likable players to me. Well, 2006, though, was really... It was not great. I'm kind of a homer, though, because he went to Marquette. Oh, okay. So it's a Wisconsin kid. Yeah. Which Tyler Hero's from Milwaukee, too. That was painful. Really? Put, it, put us out, yeah. He didn't go to... He went to Kentucky, I think, but he went but still, from Milwaukee. Tyler Hero is crazy. He's been the craziest part of all of this. Yeah. Although, I mean, Jimmy Butler, like, 40 point. 40, 30 point triple double loss. Yeah, That's I think crazy. it was 40, 13, and 11. That's crazy. Yeah, those are LeBron numbers. Yeah. I like him a lot. By the way, the starting fire from the Lakers, I added it up, put out like 57 points. You're just not going to win games if you're starting five <laughs> score 57 points. <laughs> That's true. I think LeBron had like 19, KD had 15, so and it was something like, yeah. 80? Yeah. So. Well, I just like good basketball, so I'm happy. Yep. I'm happy. Well, that uh, puts us at an hour and four minutes. It's oh, more gosh. than they wanted. It's so more than they wanted. Hopefully, um, we haven't got a lot of haters out there now. Well, I mean, you know how, how it is when you live like us. The haters are going to come. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. Okay, I'll just quit there. All right. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Another edition of it was either this or...